0: This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Well, listeners, today's episode is special. I mean, they're all special, right? All the Bold Dominion episodes help explain the way power and politics work here in our Commonwealth. Sometimes we take a deep dive into civics, probably not the way you learned it in school. Sometimes we focus on a particular issue or election. That's what we're doing today. We're looking at energy policy, Dominion, and the Clean Economy Act. But there is something else that makes today's episode special. Here on episode 84, it's my last one as the regular host of Bold Dominion. I am not a runner. I'm talking like sprinting, actual running. In fact, I'm pretty terrible at running. But I do like watching the athleticism of a good relay race. The way one runner just smoothly hands off a baton to the next, and then that runner takes off and the team moves forward. Well, today, I'm handing off our baton to a new host. I may be back once in a while for a guest hosting spot, but it's time for this team's next runner. You've heard his voice before. In fact, he was Bold Dominion's first assistant producer, going back more than three years. So without further ado, Arian Balu. Arian, take it away.
1: Thanks, Nathan. I'm going to try my best to treat the show right and uh, bring it back without a scratch. Let's get started. Here at the podcast, we like to keep tabs on Dominion Energy. After all, it is the largest publicly regulated utility in the state. Actually, one of only two. I bet most of you listening probably pay utility bills to Dominion to keep your lights on and your phones charged, so you can listen to fine podcasts like this one. Now, since it's a monopoly, Dominion can charge folks like you and me pretty much whatever they want, because we literally have no other option. The caveat is that it's supposed to be a state-regulated monopoly, which means its rates and profit margins are monitored by something called the State Corporation Commission. But the SEC's power has eroded over the past few
2: decades, thanks to a variety of bills that have been pretty soft on Dominion. So it's just sort of this little nitpicking, nuanced ways of allowing Dominion to keep the rates where they are and earn the profit that they want. And people started to get a little aware of that more and more. until so we saw some pushback this year.
1: That's Charlie Pollan, energy and environment reporter for the Virginia Mercury. That pushback that he mentioned is the utility regulation bill that passed earlier this year. In the final days of the session, the General Assembly passed sweeping new legislation on Dominion. Among other things, it changes how Dominion's profit margins are set and strengthens SEC oversight. In just two years, the SEC will be able to adjust Dominion's profits as it sees fit. That could mean some pretty big things for Dominion. More importantly, it could mean some pretty big things for the ratepayers like us. So Bull Dominion producer Alana Bittner sat down with Charlie Pollan to learn more. Charlie starts off by explaining how the SEC regulates monopolies in Virginia.
2: The way Dominion is regulated is it's based on this regulatory compact where they can serve a certain area, have a certain client base, and then they are allowed to charge the rates that they want to earn a fair rate of return. In its basic sense, the compact is just sort of like an agreement between the state corporation commission and these monopoly utilities. And they're called monopoly utilities because they're the sole providers for certain areas. There's dominion for the, the central, northern, and eastern parts there's Appalachian Power Company, which is more of the southwestern part. So the SEC is just like any other sort of state agency. So when it comes to utilities, and specifically Dominion and APCO, they'll oversee a review of their rates, what the companies are requesting, why they're requesting that, what the level should be. And then kind of outside of that, they'll oversee any other sort of projects that the utilities want to pursue, and in particular, in Virginia, under the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which is a sweeping legislation requiring the transition to renewable energy by 2050, there's tons of projects that have to get approvals, and the SEC will oversee those requests, where they're going, how much they're going to cost, all that stuff.
3: So before we dive into the bill itself, I want to like put it in context. Large legislation regarding Dominion Energy is nothing new. It kind of pops up every few years. To name a couple, there's been like the 2019 grid modernization legislation, 2015 rate freeze legislation, 2007 re-regulation legislation, among other things. I was curious, could you like explain what was the overall trend of those past bills and how does this year's bill differ from that trend?
2: Yeah, um, the way Dominion is regulated is it's based on this regulatory compact. The SEC had the authority to set the rates as they see fit under that recent years, you know, fast forward a bunch of years, that authority, that oversight for the SEC started to get eroded a little bit. The 2007 Re-Regulation Act introduced some of those measures. There was a rate freeze in 2015. And in 2018 was sort of the latest major change, the Grid Transformation Security Act. And I guess in particular, that one, it allowed for some recalculations of earnings to show that Dominion didn't earn as much and didn't have to issue refunds, which was part of you know the regulatory framework if they did over-earn. So it was just sort of this little nitpicking, nuanced ways of allowing Dominion to keep the rates where they are and earn the profit that they want. And people started to get a little aware of that more and more. Also, we saw some pushback this year.
3: One thing I'm curious about is like what led us to this pushback? I feel like there has been a long trend of Virginia politicians being pretty lenient with Dominion, Like, what do you think has caused them to take a more critical turn in the past few years?
2: I guess I would say the strength of the environmental and ratepayer advocacy group. I'm not sure how much of a presence they had before, you know, to kind of counteract some of these lobbying claims from Dominion. I think the the environmental group and the ratepayer group started to put the eyes of saying, hey, look, yeah, this does solve this issue, but hey, legislators, it also impacts, you know, repairs this way, they're still going to have to pay these costs. So they started showing that other side. And then the legislators just themselves have kind of woken up and just said, all right, yeah, we we don't really want to be dictated, forced into a situation to enforce these regulations that help Dominion. You know, we we do want to look out for the constituents.
3: I was curious also like to get to another piece of the puzzle. I mean, I feel like I've been seeing headlines lately of Dominion stock prices going down, things like that. I was curious if you could explain, like, how is Dominion doing financially and how do you think that has affected like, the passage of this new legislation?
2: Yeah, so that was kind of like a an overarching, almost unspoken tone to this whole legislation, if you will. At the end of last year, Dominion announced that they were undergoing this top-down business review and that is, that, that's coming as the stock has been lagging in the past year or so. It's just been declining. Of course, investors kind of got on on high alert to that and, you know, were asking questions, kind of what, what does this mean on their earnings call that they have? And so it kind of just put Dominion in this sort of unsettled area, if you will. And so this legislation was introduced. One of the main things with it was it altered this peer group analysis, which is what the SEC, did. it is a tool that they use to set that profit level that Dominion could have and this legislation tweaked it so it would raise that profit level so it wasn't outright you know from the beginning that dominion said that you know this increase in profit level is part of this top-down business review and the overall operations of the, of the company but uh certainly you know if, if they increase their profit level they can make more money and that certainly looks good for their investors
3: oh okay yeah no that's very interesting I was curious, and I know you've touched a little bit on this earlier, but based on current law or before this new bill, how did the SEC use peer groups to determine Dominion's profit? Like, what did that look like?
2: I mean, you could kind of think of it as just trying to set Dominion's profit level at a comparable level to other utilities in the Southeast, that that's who they're, I guess, competing against, that they want to have comparable rates to. So they would look at this subset of utilities, it was about 10 or so, and they would eliminate the the highest earning utilities and eliminate the two lowest levels from that group and then from there they would average the remainder because of that dominion said that by not looking at the full peer group they weren't getting an accurate profit level they wanted to instead average you know the whole peer group and then by doing that that would raise the profit level for them you know it'd be more accurate but they could earn more money and they said it was to make investments to the grid and operate under the mandates that they have to follow, like like the Clean Economy Act. People started pushing back and saying, you know, no, this is, this is just going to allow them to earn more money. And what ended up happening is it was actually the governor who stepped in who really strengthened that tone of, look, you can't just come in here and set these rules for how you want to be regulated. This is kind of our turf, I guess, in, in a sense, and also kind of you know, use his business mindset um, and brokered this deal where they're going to use the increased profit level for two years. Then going forward, the authority for the SEC to set the rates as they see fit be totally in their control.
3: Cool. Okay. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. So that kind of Dominion's push for that change in their profit level kind of paved the way for this new legislation. Is that kind of- a- Correct of looking
2: it at. was it was a major component. Yeah.
3: Well, yeah, I wanted to now jump into like what is folded into this legislation. And there is a lot of various things. So I wanted to like zero in on a few key points. For example, to start off, thanks to this legislation, Virginians might see like more savings on their energy bills, like six to seven dollars. And that's because rate adjustment clauses will be folded into the base rates. I was curious, could you explain what that means and how that saves consumers money?
2: Yeah, so... Uh... When it comes to customers' bills, there's two main components. There's the base rates, and then there's these rate adjustment clauses. Those are called racks or riders. They're essentially additional fees. The base rates are for distribution and transmission, you know, generating the electricity and delivering it to you. And then the racks or writers, those are the additional fees that Dominion and APCO are allowed to recoup for their investment projects. So when those stay with the life of the project, they can go on even after a project is decommissioned sometimes. So they're just these little, they're usually only like $2 or $3 a month, but there's a bunch of them for all the different projects, so they add up. And this legislation, it folded some 350 million total of racks for all customers into the base rates and that therefore will decrease the bills by $6, $7 a month, according to Dominion.
3: Oh, okay. Very cool. Also, one of the more clear-cut parts of this is the legislation requires dominion to keep less of any excess earnings I was curious like could you explain like how much of excess earnings more or less historically would they keep in the past and what how has this changed now
2: yeah um I guess I, I hate to say it, I, I didn't really get into the details of how much they overearned. there's certainly estimates of millions out there and and the way it all works is one of these nuanced changes that happened in the past few years was there. there is the profit level that Dominion's allowed to make, but then there's this thing called the earnings caller, where if Dominion earns at the profit level, the rates stay the same. The caller allowed them a 0.70 basis points increase and 0.70 decrease from that profit level if the rates were below that collar rates had to be increased if they were above the collar then refunds had to be issued and then kind of as i said a little bit earlier there were some ways to recalculate earnings you know if they did over earn they could reinvest it into the grid you know there, there were some other tricks to recalculate their accounting so it it was very rare that Dominion was found to have over-earned, and they had to do it for a two-year period consecutively. So it just was very convoluted and tricky. This bill gets rid of that collar. And so I guess just along with that restoration of the SEC's authority to set the rates as they see fit, they're just going to look at the profit level and see if they under-earned, over-earned, or hit it, and follow the same rules of of what to do.
3: Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. There's obviously a lot in this that we can't necessarily get to, but if we could maybe have a general summary of like, in what ways is the SCC's oversight strengthened in this legislation?
2: Well, that's a good question um, because a a good part of this is the incorporation of another piece of legislation that passed. It was sponsored by former Senator Jennifer McClellan and Delegate uh, Lee Ware, so I'll call it the McClellan Ware Bill very simply it just simply struck provisions from the current code that allowed dominion to recalculate their earnings and then simply wrote a sentence at least at the at the start of it it got lengthened a little bit throughout the process but um just a few words that said the sec has the discretion to see that set the rates as they see fit so as both of these were going forward the mcclellan Ware bill wasn't getting much opposition, The Dominion bill was getting a lot of pushback from the beginning. The Dominion bill incorporated the mcclellan Ware bill. They supported it. So that is kind of what sets the, the authority back into the SEC hands, is, is that bill being a part of this one.
3: In your opinion, like what does this new legislation suggest about the future of Dominion's power and influence in Virginia?
2: yeah that's sort of uh i guess the other main takeaway you know dominion was lobbying hard for this bill especially in the first half of the session you know they've always had the ability to make those minor tweaks that they had they're a very large company you know so being able to deploy lots of people to advocate for their bill probably isn't too hard but there is that pushback from the legislators VPAP, I'll say, release sort of a database on who's accepting funding from Dominion. I'm not sure how much that's at play, contributions or, or contributions, but I think with the governor stepping in and with the House sort of stepping in the House Republicans, both of them saying you can't set the profit level this much. So with those two things, there is a, an awakening, I guess, realization of Dominion doing these things. Yeah, this was just one session. Who's to say Dominion will come back next year to try and make some changes? Who's to say the the political will remains there, if you will? We'll see. So, um, to be determined.
1: That was Charlie Pollan, energy and environment reporter for the Virginia Mercury. Stay with us for a short break. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia visit us online at bolddominion.org. You can also always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. You can go ahead and subscribe and leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective. From science to history to music to community affairs, we amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. So, now we're caught up on the latest with the Dominion bill, but one bill in one year is just uh well, it's just one data point. Energy policy is the kind of area that's measured more in decades, not years. And one of the big inflection points in Virginia's energy policy came back in 2020 when the Democratic-controlled legislature passed the Virginia Clean Economy Act. The law set a variety of energy standards, including that our energy providers be 100% renewable by 2050. But setting the standards and meeting them are two different things. I talked to Kim Jemaine, policy director at Advanced Energy United. That's a trade association that represents companies in the advanced energy tech space. That includes wind, solar, and things like electric vehicles. She walks us through the challenges that we faced in implementing the Clean Economy Act and what she hopes to see in Virginia's energy future. (laughs)
4: Obviously, we're still in the very early stages of this legislation. It passed in 2020, 2023 now, and the legislation essentially sets a pathway out to 2045 and 2050. So we're still in the early stages. Um, But we've already seen kind of the proliferation of solar projects in the Commonwealth, which I think is clear evidence that the VCA is working and driving us towards a clean energy future. And then the the commitment to expand offshore wind, including 2.6 gigawatts of offshore wind, is continued proof of, of that forward trajectory. And then I think one of the things that is kind of overlooked is the energy efficiency programming that happens through the utilities. Um, every year, they're essentially proposing new ones to the SEC and expanding those existing programs to help Virginians save money. And we wouldn't have seen the growth of those programs without the Clean Economy Act. So those are some real tangible results of the Clean Economy Act. And like I said, we're still in the early stages of that legislation.
1: So talking about the Clean Economy Act, we obviously we passed the bill in 2020. But then since then, there's been an administration change. There's been a pandemic. So what have been some of the kind of struggles in implementing the standards that were set in the bill?
4: Yeah, of course. So. There, Like you said, I think there are some just like structural challenges and then challenges with actually deploying our technologies. The first one and the I think one that's really pertinent right now is the current lack of a full state corporation commission. So only one of the three judges are currently on the bench. Um, this slows the pace of approvals by regulators and limits their ability to fully consider consider the trajectory of Virginia's grid. So that's definitely a challenge. I know that there were some discussions this legislative session to reach agreement on who those new commissioners would be. And it's something that we're definitely paying attention to um, and think is vital to ensuring that we implement the Clean Economy Act effectively. Um, So there are also some citing challenges that we've seen. This is an issue that we see throughout the country and is becoming um, an increasing issue here in Virginia. So we know that landowners want have an interest in leasing their project for renewable development. We also know that towns want to see the new tax revenue and economic growth from these projects. But what we view as a small set of citizens have essentially hamstrung renewable energy deployment and development with local siting restrictions and litigation, which slow these projects, make them really expensive. And so that's something that our member companies and developers are definitely seeing as a challenge on the ground. And then I think the third issue is that there are too many regulatory and technical barriers to the growth of rooftop and shared solar. These te- technologies can and should play a part of moving us toward a 100% clean grid, um, but right now they're, they're blocked. So those are essentially three of the the barriers that we've seen to the Clean Economy Act.
1: So who are some of the people kind of standing in the way?
4: Yeah, so some of it is just regulation and legislation. Um, Like I said, with the siting challenges, a lot of that is um, just a set of folks who don't necessarily want these projects sited in their communities or near their land. And so they are hindering the build out of those projects, regardless of whether or not that's a consensus of the wider community, which I don't think it is. Um, and then I think when it comes to things like the SEC and some of the technical barriers, I think that is just a, a shortcoming when it comes to politics and policy in the Commonwealth. When it comes to expanding access to solar, and, to rooftop solar and distributed generation, that's something that we definitely have to focus on legislatively. Um, making sure that everyday Virginians can access um, rooftop solar. And then things like the SEC, I think, are largely re- related to just partisan um, disagreement about who should be um, on the on the State Corporation Commission. So it really is, there's not one specific group that is um, at, at the helm when it comes to these challenges. They're just, when you're making a, a broad energy transition... I think there are, are challenges that are going to arise, and that's what we're seeing here.
1: So kind of putting it all together, uh, where are we going in the next five or 10 years in terms of uh, energy in Virginia?
4: I think the short answer is if we implement the Clean Economy Act correctly, in 10 years, we hope to see wind and solar constitute a, a, a substantial share of our grid. And obviously, those would need to be supported by energy storage. But this also means making, like I said, rooftop solar and other forms of distributed generation resources more accessible to Virginians. So that's really important. It also means overcoming some of the current barriers to utility-scale solar development and some of the siting issues that we've seen. So that's one area where we have a vision for where we'll be in 10 years and we need to ensure that that happens. We also hope to see continued investment in 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 the strengthening of energy efficiency programs. Energy efficiency is an important tool for helping both clean our grid and also cutting um, electric bills. The current EERS targets only run until 2026. So extending those into the future will be key to making sure that energy efficiency plays the necessary role in our clean energy future. And then apart from the Clean Economy Act and the power sector, we've also seen the Commonwealth take steps over the last few years to reduce emissions from the transportation sector and move toward transportation electrification. So we've seen Virginia uphold its commitment to advance clean car standards as well as an effort to begin electrifying state fleet vehicles. I think the next frontier when it comes to transportation electrification um, will be expanding EV charging infrastructure so that it's more accessible for everyday folks, and then also working to electrify medium and heavy duty vehicles. So the legislation we've seen in the last couple of years has really focused on personal vehicles, everyday drivers, and um, the next frontier should definitely be medium and heavy duty vehicles. And then, one, I think, unique opportunity that we have is to build out the manufacturing industry, um, which is the backbone to these technologies. It's great to see Siemens Gamesa, that plant, opening up in Virginia. But as you probably know, we kind of missed the boat on the Ford uh, battery plant. And so, there's definitely a, a, an advanced energy manufacturing renaissance happening throughout the country, but Virginia's kind of been slow to reap the benefits. And so this that's really one area that we should take deliberate steps to ensure Virginia seizes the economic and job opportunities there. So I think those are, in in addition to the goals within the Clean Economy Act, we need to make sure that we're investing in um, all types of of solar. We're investing in energy efficiency and storage. And then, like I said, the transportation sector is also an area that we want to electrify. And then I think the final thing is obviously that that unique opportunity when it comes to the manufacturing industry.
1: Does nuclear energy have a place in sort of these conversations about energy in the future? Or is there sort of something holding that back?
4: The short answer is yes, nuclear and other zero emission resources that are kind of in the emerging stage right now are already envisioned as part of the Virginia Clean Economy Act. So today, nuclear generation supplies essentially a third of the state's electricity. So before we calculate the share of the load that needs to be decarbonized, we essentially take out that third so that we're not a double decarbonizing. So existing nuclear already plays a role in the Clean Economy Act. A lot of what you've probably heard in the last couple of months has been about what we call advanced nuclear or small modular nuclear reactors. When those are commercially viable, they also have a place um, in Virginia's clean energy grid. But right now, they're probably 10 plus years away. They're very much in the research and development stage right now. We welcome additional research and development to get there. But we definitely don't think that that should fall on the shoulders of ratepayers. We think that between solar, wind, battery storage, there are existing cost-effective options to move us towards um, decarbonizing the grid. And we need to keep deploying those as we continue to research and focus on small modular nuclear reactors. So essentially, they definitely have a role to play but the reality is that they're probably about 10 years at the at the least away from commercial viability.
1: So we've got the benchmarks and standards set by the Clean Economy Act. But uh, does it look like, you know, given Virginia's current energy plan, are we doing enough to hit those marks?
4: If we're talking about the energy plan issued in October by the Youngkin administration, the short answer is no. The plan really did three main things. The first one was that it focus on criticizing the Clean Economy Act, which isn't super helpful because the Clean Economy Act, regardless of feelings or political viewpoints, is the Commonwealth's energy policy. And so the energy plan really should have focused and the Commonwealth would have been best served with an energy plan that set an eye toward implementing the Clean Economy Act and expanding access to these resources, making them making sure that they're cost effective and affordable and that some of the barriers we spoke about earlier were reduced. So I think that's re- that was really a missed opportunity. The energy plan focused so much on criticizing the Clean Economy Act and casting doubt about it when it really should have focused on how to make sure that we're um, thinking about how to implement that act. And then the second thing it did was essentially talk a lot about energy innovation and emerging technologies like SMRs which we already talked about. Uh, These are welcome in the long term but don't address short-term obstacles and so that that is another area where we were looking 10, 15, 20 years into the future rather than focusing on what we can do in the next five or 10 years. And then I think finally, it expressed concerns around around ratepayers and ratepayer impacts, which is a concern that we share as well. But if you look at a lot of the data that was included in the energy plan, the drivers of these costs are disproportionately fossil fuel plants, not the Clean Economy Act or associated projects. And so we think there's a lot to do to protect ratepayers by bringing additional SEC oversight and competition into the market. And we we welcome engagement with the administration or others on this issue. I think probably the most glaring shortcoming of the energy plan is that it didn't discuss at all how the state would move to electrify transportation, um, even though that's a requirement of the plan. So as you likely know, transportation the transportation sector is the um, largest source of emissions in the Commonwealth. And so the energy plan was supposed to set forward a plan for decarbonizing that sector and did not include anything at all about the transportation sector. So that's definitely another missed opportunity.
1: So I want to take a step back uh, and kind of ask uh, why should we be caring about this? You know, not just sort of interested in seeing a renewable or zero carbon energy future, but actively pushing for it.
4: That's kind of a. a a layered answer. The first one is obviously that there are factors outside of just pure energy generation that we have to consider. And so we we know that we have to begin reducing emissions from the power sector and from the transportation sector. And so that's a reason to be investing in deploying these resources, is that uh, climate change is a factor reducing emissions is something that's going to be vital over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I think the answer that's more in line with in line with my organization is that these technologies just frankly represent the least cost way to generate power. So when it comes to things like utility scale solar, energy efficiency storage, they are technologies that are viable right now they're ready, they are cost-effective and efficient, and they also present an opportunity to create a more resilient and reliant grid. So distributed generation, energy storage, energy efficiency create a grid that is reliable, cost-effective for everyday folks, and also offers a way to reduce our emissions. So overall, these are just the technologies that um, offer the the best way and the best path forward for the next decade and moving looking forward
1: that was kim jemaine policy director at advanced energy united thanks to her and charlie Pollan for speaking with us today my name is arian baloo and i'm the host of bold dominion our producer this week was alana bittner special thanks of course to our founder and original host nathan moore he will still be around folks uh, you can find us online at bolddominion.org, and don't forget to subscribe it's just a click away. I'll see you folks next time.